Hi, this is Lily, and I'm a member of the Beacon Church. Welcome to our podcast. We'd love to meet you, so come visit us on Sundays at 9.30 a.m. or 11.30 a.m. at the Viscardi Center at 201 IU Willits Road in Albertson, New York. Now, Beacon is a non-for-profit, and if you shop Amazon, you can support the work at Beacon by selecting the Beacon Church of Long Island as your supporting organization. And a small portion of every purchase will help move our work forward. Remember to shop at smile.amazon.com and select the Beacon Church of Long Island as your supporting organization. Thank you and hope to see you soon. The truth? God is big. Bigger than big. Bigger than all the words we use to say big. Only a God of infinite power, wisdom, and majesty can answer our deepest questions and meet our deepest longings. But most of the time, our view of God is far too small. We make God predictable, explainable, safe. It might make Him easier to believe in, but it ends up destroying our faith in the process. God is not just a slightly better, slightly smarter version of you. He's infinite and glorious. An encounter with him won't just change the way we think about our faith, it will change our entire lives. Only when we see God as infinitely bigger and completely unlike us will we be able to approach life with unflagging courage and unquenchable passion. There's a tremendous gap that exists between God and us. God is perfect and holy and all-powerful and all-knowing. And then, well, (laughs) there's us. And we have a sense of this gap that exists between God and us. And instinctively, we know that this is a problem, which is true. This gap is certainly a problem. And so we start to go to work on this gap just a little bit. And we started to unpack this idea last week because one of the first things that we do is we often start with God. You see, you know, God is amazing. He's the creator of everything. And we talked last week about how just simply understanding the number of stars that exist in the universe, if you could fully understand that thought, it will unpack a God who is much larger than we can really possibly even understand or comprehend. But then we'll say to ourselves, but you know, I've heard that maybe God didn't create everything. That there are ideas and conditions which may have existed that the world came into being without God having to be involved. So I'm not really sure that he is that big, great, mighty creator after all. And so we take God and we start to kind of move him towards us a little bit. Then we say, you know, I've also heard that God is all-powerful. That he can do anything. And there's nothing that's beyond his scope of what he can do. But, you know, some of the acts that have been, you know, ascribed to God, they, they could have been chance or could have simply been chaos. Or, you know what? I personally asked God to do some things that he didn't do. So he's either not all-powerful or he wasn't interested in doing them. Either way, maybe that means God isn't quite so far from us as we thought and we move him towards us a little bit more. Then we say, we know that God is in relationship with all of us at once. But really, 
Is he close? Is he personal? Or is he a little bit distracted by running all of this universe? And we bring him towards us a little bit. We say, now I've been told that God is, is holy and perfect and that there's no sin in him. And I know that's true, but some of God's ways, they seem a little old-fashioned. In fact, I'm not even sure that I identify with some of them anymore. And so it's, it's really, he's kind of restricted. And so we kind of move God a little bit towards us. And we say, okay, now, this is a God that I can understand. This is a God that makes sense to me. And he's a really good guy, don't get me wrong. Sort of like Santa in a way, like really generous, really kind, happy to give gifts to people who are remotely good. Like this is a good God, but not mighty, not powerful, not perfect, not holy, just kind of generally a great guy. Then we start to go to work on ourselves. We think, all right, now, I've been told that I'm a terrible sinner. Some of you personally have told me that, actually, that I'm a terrible sinner. But I I'm not convinced First of all, some of the sins that are in my life and in our lives, I didn't know better. It was kind of ignorance. It doesn't really feel like a sin problem. It feels like an education problem. I didn't really know that I wasn't supposed to do these things. It really doesn't seem too bad. In fact, I might be a little closer to God than I realized. And then other times we say, you know, everyone makes mistakes, right? I mean, there's such thing as an honest mistake. Those are the sins that we make that really you didn't mean to make them. So they really even count as sins if you didn't mean to sin. I mean, this is like the tree falling in the forest thing. Like, I'm not really sure that it's a big deal if you didn't mean to, right? I didn't mean to hurt anyone. Therefore, it's not a big deal. Maybe I'm not as, as bad off as I thought. Or often we realize, you know, the sin that's in our lives, it's because of the circumstances in which I find myself. So it's not really my fault. I mean, I would have never said such a thing if I wasn't so tired. Or I would have never been so dismissive except I'm just so busy. Or I was very hangry or whatever the reason is, right? You feel like, you know, I'm not really sure that it's my fault. I mean, the circumstances of life, they sort of drive me to these things. And we move ourselves closer and closer to God. And then if we're honest, sometimes we think, listen, I know that I'm not perfect, but... Uh, there's a lot of people over here. I'm ahead of a lot of people. I mean, first of all, I mean, you've got like Hitler and Mussolini and those guys, right? I mean, they're like, they don't even get to be on the chart. But just kind of a lot of the regular people that I meet, when I, you know, see them out and about, I realize, yeah, I'm, I'm doing okay. And we close this gap between God and us until it gets to sort of be a manageable size, we think, all right, now this gap doesn't seem like such a big deal. In fact, since it's really not a big deal, I'm guessing that God will overlook it. We've all been told that God is good, God is kind, God is love. That's what kindness and love would look like, right? To just overlook this gap between us and God and for God to say, you know what? You're right, it is a small gap. I'm going to let it go. In fact, when you realize, when you think that the gap is so small, you start to wonder, is Jesus really the only way to close this gap? That seems a little bit extreme. I mean, Christians will tell you the only way to close the gap between God and man is Jesus, but it's really not that big of a gap. Surely there are other ways to accomplish what's really a, a fairly small problem. And this is where we so often find ourselves, we've decided, <coughs> excuse me, that God really isn't all that great or all that mighty, and really not all that bad. 
And this is where most people live their lives. Well, the prophet Isaiah was unpacking a vision from God where he began to explain the holiness of who God is. So take a Bible, if you would, turn to Isaiah chapter 6. We're going to read some of it out loud together, so make sure you have one. If you brought a Bible with you, that's great. If you want a paper Bible, just raise your hand right now. We'll get you one. If you're using one of the apps, that's great too. We're going to be in the New International Version today, as we usually are. I know your app has like 20 different versions. Uh, it's pretty amazing, by the way. You can have 20 versions of the Bible in your pocket, but that's a sermon for another day. So we're looking at the prophet Isaiah. And remember, as a prophet, they wrote, honestly, the prophets write crazy stuff because it's very poetic and it's based on these scenes and visions. And this is one of those sections of the Bible where there's a prophet who's had a vision to him from God and he's using huge language to try to describe this vision that God has laid on his heart. It's almost like you've gone to an over-the-top action movie with an unlimited budget. Okay, as a, as a writer, that's what Isaiah is trying to do. He's trying to paint this huge picture of a vision that was given to him by God. All right, let me read first for a little bit, then I'm going to bring you in. Verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. Now, would you read all of verse 3 with me, please? And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the threshold shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Read these three words. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, say it with me, Here am I. Send me. Okay, so this is the vision that Isaiah has, right? Let's go through this verse by verse for a few minutes. Verse 1 says, this was when King Uzziah died. Now, that's mentioned for two reasons, I believe. First, it gives historic context to exactly when God gave this vision to Isaiah, which would be important in Isaiah's life because this was actually kind of the beginning of his prophetic ministry. So scholars tell us this would have been in 740 B.C., so roughly, you know, 700 plus years before Jesus would come. It also mattered because King Uzziah was a very interesting king. This is of Judah, and King Uzziah was a pretty good king. He had been king for a little over 50 years. He became king when he was 16 years old. But King Uzziah made one mistake. When things were going pretty well during his reign, he had an idea, and King Uzziah went to the temple. And he went into the part of the temple where only the priests were allowed to go. The priest told him, uh, King, you can't be in here. You're not a priest. He basically said, I'm a good king. I've been following God. I am allowed to come in here in this part of the temple. And then King Uzziah lit some incense in worship of God. And so immediately, which he was not supposed to do, immediately God struck him with leprosy, a contagious skin disease that he had for the rest of his life. 
And it was custom in those days, if you had leprosy, you must be segregated from the community and declared unclean because you were contagious and it was disgusting. So for the rest of Uzziah's reign, his son was kind of the face of the place. He would work directly with the, you know, the, the, everyone, really, both his, you know, the administration and the subjects, everyone. So the king and his son kind of ruled together. But King Uzziah was known for going into the temple and creating fire and smoke in a way that was not acceptable to God. Then Isaiah's in there. He says, I saw the Lord. We say, but if you see the Lord, you would die, right? Remember, it's a vision, okay? So in his vision, he saw the Lord, and he's trying to describe the scope of this king that he sees because there's someone sitting on a throne in the temple of God. No one would ever dare to take such a risk as to sit on a throne in the temple of God because that is really the most blasphemous thing any other person could do would be to go into the temple and say, this is all about me. And he says, no, 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 this is my temple. And Isaiah is trying to say the scope of this king was such that the train of his robe, just like a bridal gown sometimes has a train, right? The end. Or some translators say it could even be the hem of his robe. That small piece of what the king was wearing, it filled the entire room. This was one of the grandest structures in that part of the world. He's saying, no, 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 you think that's big? It was full just from the edge of the robe of the king. Imagine the scope and size of what Isaiah is trying to describe. Then he says, there were seraphim flying around. This is not a common word in the Bible. You might be familiar with it because there's a very famous hymn which takes some of its imagery from this chapter. And so it talks about cherubim and seraphim as though they're kind of related. Maybe they're the, you know, the Christmas angels or something. No, no, no. Seraphim are very unique. And it literally means burning creature. So there are burning creatures flying around inside the temple, crying, holy, holy, holy. Why do they repeat themselves Twice, what's with the threefold repetition? Same reason you repeat yourself three times to your kids. You're trying to get through, right? You're trying to make a point. You're repeating it for emphasis, saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. And they're saying it so loud that the structure itself is shaking. The pillars in the ground are shaking at the sound of their voice. And these burning creatures are creating a fog of smoke in the room. Can you just try to picture this? Isaiah is saying the room was full. We had a king on a throne, burning things flying around. I could see it. I could smell it. I was scared out of my mind. Isaiah is saying God is so much more than I can even understand or comprehend. That the majesty and the glory of who he is. And Isaiah was petrified. And what did Isaiah say when he started to understand? You said it with me. He said, he said, woe is me. I'm so far away from who that is. And he went on, he said, I have unclean lips and all of my people have unclean lips. I mean, this is bad. This is very, very, very bad. I'm in the presence of perfection and I'm dirty. And he just assumed he was going to die. He assumed that was the, he didn't know this was the beginning of his ministry. He thought it was the end. He thought it was like, hey, nice to see you. You're done. No. He says, woe is me. I have unclean lips. 
he's confronted with the reality of the difference between God and him. And he's recorded this vision for us so we can start to feel that tension as well. Now, it's difficult for us to think of ourselves as sinners. It really is. I mean, if you ask people, what needs to change in your life? They will usually center around three concepts. The first, they'll say, in my life, I need to change my circumstances. I need a new job, or I need a new house, or I would like to lose weight, or get married. If I could change my circumstances, then my life would really be on track. Then I would really start to be the person that I want to be. Or they say, you know what, seems more advanced. I want to change my behavior. There are some things that I do that I need to stop doing. I'd like to smoke less. I'd like to drink less. I'd like to exercise more. I'd like to read more. I'd like to watch less TV. You know, whatever these behaviors are. And they say, if I could change those behaviors, then my life would really be right. In fact, if I'm honest, if I could change my circumstances and my behavior, I could start to close this gap back down. Wouldn't that be nice? Or what's becoming even more popular now is people say, you know what, I really just need to change how I view myself. Because the way that I view myself doesn't seem to be right. I don't want anyone to shame me. Don't you dare shame me. Don't shame me for how I dress. Don't shame me for my body. The worst thing you can do nowadays is shame someone, right? And believe me, I don't, I don't want us to disparage each other ever. That's not what I'm saying. But, you know, shame used to be one of those warning lights that you would check in your heart to see if God was kind of speaking to you about something that needed to be fixed. And now shame, it's, it's nearly becoming, you know, a, a virtuous thing. Don't, don't shame me. None of these are what actually needs to change. You don't need to change your circumstances. You don't need to change your behavior. You don't need to change the way you view yourself. We need to actually change the condition of our hearts. So when we talk about sin, what are we talking about? Simply put, sin is breaking God's law. God has prescribed how people are supposed to live, and we are to live according to his laws. And it encompasses all of human behavior in both the positive and the negative. So you can sin in what you do, you can sin in what you say, and you can sin in what you think. And in the same way, you can sin in what you do not do, you can sin in what you do not say, and you can sin in what you do not think. The scope of sin becomes very, very wide. And whenever we break law, whenever we break the law, God's law, we have permanently stained ourselves with sin. James Langston describes sin this way. He said, is to the soul what scars are to a beautiful face, what a stain is to white silk cloth. It is ugliness across the face of beauty. And there are so many different ways that we sin. We sin through a lack of integrity. The Bible calls it iniquity where we decide that we're willing to be dishonest. We sin through transgression, through intentional wrongdoing. We sin through violence and lovelessness towards others. We sin through rebellion. We decide to turn away from any authority and go our own way. We sin through ingratitude when we refuse to be thankful for what we've been given. We sin through treachery when we are willing to deceive in order to advance our position. 
We sin through betrayal when we are willing to turn away from the people who've been loyal to us in order to pursue our own ends. We sin through selfishness when we are willing to do anything and everything to help ourselves only. I see this one a lot when I drive, actually. I like to say this in my car. My boys will tell you, when someone does a crazy thing driving, I usually say the same thing. I say, me, 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 because that's how they're driving. They're making their decision, and they, me, I need to turn right here, because if I don't turn here, me will have, and it's just me, me, me. By the way, unrelated to this sermon, I would love to open a driving school <laughs> so that I could try to work with people on these issues. I would love to just like follow him and pull over and be like, excuse me, hi, I, I was following you before. I wanted to give you my card for my driving school because I could really help you because, well, you need so much help because the way you drive is a danger to yourself and to everyone you've ever met. We sin through selfishness. We sin through perversion when we take that which should be beautiful and pure and we distort it. We sin through denial when we refuse to even acknowledge the things that we've done. We sin through rejection when we willfully omit others and make them feel left out. We sin through pollution when we take that which should be sustained and instead we destroy it. We sin through insidiousness when we hide under what is good. We even pretend that virtue and vice are reversed. We commit acts of, of abomination which are actually a revulsion to God. We cause each other pain and we cause each other death. This is the pain which we inflict upon the world when we sin. And we don't like to look at it that way. And you say, but I also do so many good things. How can you be so hard on me? J.D. Greer in his book, Not God Enough, he says, imagine there are two terrorists who are plotting to blow up an elementary school. And they're having a meeting. And during the course of their meeting, they decide to break from lunch. Maybe it takes a lot of planning. I don't know. So they decide to go out to lunch. And one terrorist says to the other terrorist, you know what? I don't have any money. And the terrorist says, you know what? I'll buy you lunch. That's a good thing, right? One person buying lunch for another. So are you ready now to declare that he's a good person, this terrorist, because he bought lunch for his co-terrorist? Of course not. Because the stain of sin is so deep and so permanent that the idea that we can somehow clean it up by doing a few good things is preposterous. Later in his book, Isaiah says it this way, all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all of our righteous acts are like filthy rags. And the word here for filthy rag refers to the rag in those days that women would use on their menstrual period. He says, you want to talk about your filthy deeds? This is what they are. And it could never make us right and pure again. So we have to acknowledge our sinfulness. You know, maybe for you it would be helpful to pray a prayer like this that you may have heard before. You can pray this each morning. Dear Lord, so far I've done all right. I haven't gossiped, haven't lost my temper, haven't been greedy, grumpy, nasty, selfish, or overindulgent. I'm really glad about that. But in a few minutes, God, I'm going to get out of bed. And from then on, I'm going to need a lot more help. We have to acknowledge the depths of our sin. And to truly see the impact of sin, we have to realize who we are sinning against. Because in any offense, who the offense is committed against largely defines the severity of 
the offense. Okay, this is not theoretical. Greer gives us a great example in his book. He says, imagine the offense that you're going to commit is you're going to kick. That's what you're going to do. Okay? So the first thing that you do is you kick a wall. All right? So if you kick a concrete wall, no one's offended except your foot. There's no apology to make. If you destroy a wall owned by someone else, you have to pay for them to fix it. That'll be it. But let's say you decide to kick a dog. Well, that is objectively wrong to kick a dog. I didn't say cat because it's a little more questionable, okay? But if you kick a dog, it's objectively wrong, and other people will probably not let their children play with your children anymore because you've done a bad thing. Let's say you're in the grocery store. A woman's moving a little too slowly for you, and you kick her, right? Well, you'll probably be arrested, fined, maybe even a little bit of, you know, maybe an overnight in jail. I don't know. But let's say, no, not just any woman. You decide to waltz into Buckingham Palace and roundhouse kick the Queen of England. This is probably your last day, right? If it's not your last day, you're going to be in prison for a long, long time, maybe for life, because now you're a terrorist. And it's all a kick. You've done the exact same thing. But whoever you committed the offense against, that determined the severity of the crime. And here's the problem with sin. I think it's impossible to commit only one sin. I think sins come at least in pairs and sometimes more. Because when we sin, there's another sin behind the sin. Stay with me, okay? Think of the Ten Commandments. That's about as much law as I can keep in my head at once. Ten Commandments, right? The first one, no other gods before God. Second one, no idol worship. And they're closely related, Okay? See, when we sin, when we choose to sin, we first declared, well, you know what? This thing which is wrong, I'm going to do it anyway. Sin number one. Then we've said, you know what? God is the one who said it was wrong. But I say it's fine. Well, who's God now? It's not him. It's me because I'm making this call. And so I have offended God by every sin. So sin is not only breaking God's law, it is also breaking God's heart. Because we have said, it doesn't matter what you think, it doesn't matter what you say, I'm making this call. And the brutality of that against the creator who made us and the savior who pursues us is unconscionable. We can tease this out as an example. Let's say that I decide to cheat on my income taxes, okay? So first thing I decided to do was uh, move a bunch of my compensation over to cash because now it's tax-free and I'll be able to take home more of that money. Once I take home more of that money, I'll do more good with it, right? I'll provide for my family and I'll pay more tithe to the church. It's all well and good, right? I've decided that the government charges me too much taxes and I found a way to reduce that tax to a level that I think is appropriate or reasonable. So let's just think about the little constellation of sins that was just launched. So the first one is the breach of integrity, where I decided to cheat. I said, listen, I get to make this call. I'm not doing it. Second is the authority piece. They asked Jesus, by the way, Jesus, do we really have to pay taxes to these Romans? They're like an occupying force, you know. We didn't really invite them to live here. And Jesus said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. So this one's not gray. They asked Jesus, do we have to pay our taxes? He said, uh-huh, right? Now, and remember, that was an occupying force, so don't tell me, I don't like what the government does with my money. Yeah, there's still not an occupying force, okay? 
So then I said, listen, God said to do it. I say don't. I'm the God now. I'm in charge. I'm making this call. And in fact, this is a nice one because we even get to throw in a third sin because what's now more important to me than my own integrity or my relationship with my God? Well, my money. So now I have an idol, right? Boom. Three sins just like that. Two of which a direct offense against the heart of God. You may remember the story of King David in the Bible. It's a long story, but he was attracted to a woman who was already married. So he orchestrated a series of events so that, uh, first of all, he slept with her when she was married to someone else. Then he got her husband killed in war. Then he married her. And it's, it's kind of funny. Funny is not the right word. But it's kind of funny. This prophet Nathan comes to David and says, I got to tell you this story about this guy who had everything, but he took the one thing from this other guy. And David said, who would do such a thing? And Nathan was like, hmm, that was you. And then David was stunned because he realized all of the sins he had committed, how he had sinned against the woman, then he had sinned against her husband. He had sinned against his nation who had trusted him to lead them with integrity. He had sinned because he hasn't been fighting at war and even more sins. But what did David say? He said, against you, speaking to his God, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. All of our sin is a sin against the God who created us. And so when we start to realize the depths of our sin, it can fill us with despair. But what's beautiful is it's actually here in this gap that we find our hope. Because it's here in this gap that the Lord is at work. Because if you're still sticking with plan A of trying to bring God down as much as you can, trying to bring yourself up as much as you can, and hoping for a small gap, I've never yet met someone who said they closed it completely. At the end of that story, they always say, so I think it's going to be good enough. Wrong answer. It's also petrifying to leverage eternity on the hope that you somehow shrunk this gap enough. If you want true hope, it's understanding that God is at work in this gap. That it is for this reason that Jesus came, because only Jesus could do this, and so he did. And it's there that we find true and lasting hope. One of my uh, teachers that I like, John Piper, he says, you know, the problem with sin is we often view it as we're in the doghouse. You know, or like a husband who's sleeping on the couch. And what we need to do is we need to kind of get out of trouble. And we're essentially good people who've messed up a little bit, and we just need to improve ourselves a little bit. And Piper says, sin is not a man who's in the doghouse. Sin is a man or a woman who is in the morgue. We are dead in our sin. But there was only one who was in the business of bringing back the dead, and that is Jesus. So he is at work within us to say, I have forever closed this gap because of my life, death, and resurrection. And it's in this gap that we meet him. And when that gap has been closed by Jesus, then we see true and lasting freedom. Because we can be free of sin. It does not have to plague us for life. You can be free of sin's penalty for all who choose to enter into relationship with God. For everyone who says, I allow Jesus and I ask and beg for him to stand in this gap for me. The penalty of sin 
is removed. And then beyond that, as we grow, we can start to be free of the power of sin. The sin, you know, the Bible talks about us being slaves who are in bondage to sin that we, we can't escape. No, in Christ, then we can escape. We can become free of its power, and then we spend eternity with Christ, free even from the very presence of sin. And all of that freedom is found only in Jesus who closed this gap and brought God near to us. And for the Christian, if you wanted to think of really one word from today, just one word to remember from our time together, I think that word should be repentance. Because it's in repentance that we humble ourselves and we ask Jesus, we say, I have done so much wrong. The more I understand about sin, the worse it gets. And I'm such a sinner. But we ask Jesus to stand in our place. We ask him to take that on. And for the believer, I think that repentance really looks two ways. There's an initial moment of repentance when we fully understand this and we say, I'm here to repent of my sins. And if you've never done that, if you've never really been honest with yourself to say, I am a sinner. And without Jesus, I'll be forever separated from God. Today could be that opportunity for you to pray that prayer. But Christians also live a life of ongoing repentance. And one of the, the most beautiful symbols and moments that we can have for repentance is the table of communion that we celebrate so often together. I'm going to ask the band to come up because we are going to receive communion together in a couple minutes but you can just see the picture that God has really unfolded for us because the only bridge, the only gap between God and us is this table. Because this table reminds us that Jesus came, that he was given on the cross, and that was the moment that closed this gap. And so that's why when Jesus was sitting down with his disciples the night before he was betrayed sinfully by someone who he knew very well, he gave them this act. He gave them this opportunity. And we're going to repent together in a moment. But I don't want to skip the end of the story. Because if you remember, at the end of this vision, Isaiah had been purified, right? And the vision was, you know, a coal from the fire touched his lips because Isaiah had said, my lips are unclean. He said, no, no, your lips are clean. And then what happened at the end? If you remember, then God said, now, who's ready to go out on the mission of God? Who's ready to go out and be my follower, be my disciple? Who's ready to go out and change this world? And then Isaiah was able to say, here am I, send me. Because we don't repent and allow Jesus to stand in our place so that we can become the best version of ourselves so we can crush it in whatever your career is or whatever your opportunities are. No, Jesus redeems us for himself so that we can be sent out on the mission of God. Remember, this was the beginning of Isaiah's ministry. This is when he was commissioned. And so it is out of our repentance that we see that commission. We see the sending. We see that God has sent us out to be his people. 
So I'm going to invite you right now to, to bow your heads. This is going to be a time of repentance for us. I'm going to pray over us first, and then we're going to have an opportunity for silent prayer for each of us to pray in repentance. God, we stand before you today. We sit in your presence, and in the way best that we can understand, we're confronted with the reality of who you are and the reality of who we are, and it's frightening. It's disheartening. And so, Father, we take our sin, that sin which has controlled us, that sin which has defiled us, that sin which has scarred us, and we repent of that sin. We declare we are wrong, you are right. We declare you are perfect. We are broken. We declare that we've done so many things. We've said so many things. We've thought so many thoughts that hurt and broke your heart. And for that, we are so sorry. The words even seem hollow, God, but we apologize, we repent, and we turn away from those acts that break your heart. Would you take time now for silent prayer of repentance? God may even bring to your mind specific sins. This week, this morning, sins that have created distance between you and him. Would you just pray over that right now? Would you ask for freedom from that sin? You may bring to your mind unforgiveness the sin of holding a grudge against others who have sinned against you. Now sin is compounding sin and becoming more sin. Would you pray for freedom from that? God may bring to your mind addiction that you're struggling with, known or unknown. He may bring to mind relationships that you're in that are completely based on sin and that need to be fundamentally changed or excised. Repent of those sins. We worship you, God. We worship you. Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, have mercy on us, your broken people. God, we're so sorry. The things we've done, the things we've said, forgive us. God, as we pray these prayers of repentance, we know because of the confidence we have in your character and your word that these prayers have been heard and that the blood of Christ has superseded these sins and has made things right between us and you. And we've been forgiven of our sins and we've been cleansed of our unrighteousness to be presented before you, the Father, as spotless and holy. God, this is not something we take lightly. We thank you for that. 